Hi everyone, and excited as we come together for another study in our continued exploration of the Gospel of John. As a reminder, it's all part of the series, Life in His Name. And today, Pastor Brian picks up our study in the second half of chapter 3. It includes probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3:16. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. God's gift of salvation is available for all. But why do so many reject it? Well, the Bible itself gives us the sobering verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Pastor Brian reminds us that Jesus' heart is not to condemn and invites all to step out of darkness into light and life in His name. Uh, good morning. It's great to be together, and we are, of course, carrying on in our series that we have uh, entitled Life in His Name, and we're on this journey through John's Gospel. As we pick up John's telling of the story of Jesus, we are right at the place where Jesus is answering the question of Nicodemus. How can someone be born again? Or how can one enter a second time into his mother's womb? So Jesus is talking about something spiritual. And Nicodemus, even though he is a spiritual leader, he's not really getting it. He, he's just thinking in natural terms. Remember, Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. Jesus refers to him that way. And the significant thing here to keep in mind is that he is coming to Jesus looking for answers to the deep questions about life and God that his faithful religious devotion had not been able to answer for him. You know, there, there is such a profound difference in being religious and being born again. And, and I think sometimes we, we can almost lose that because even the, the, you know, the terms born again have been used so often and in so many contexts and applied to so many people it's, it's sort of like the, the term Christian itself. It's almost like, what does that even mean these days? Everybody's a Christian. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but Vladimir Putin is claiming to be a champion of the Christian faith. And he's doing what he's doing for the sake of the church the Orthodox Church. 
So you get what I mean. And the, the same is true with born again. But we cannot lose a sight of, of how radically different this experience is that Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus is sort of, he's just the embodiment of the difference because he is, as was previously said, he is an example of the best Israel had to offer. He's a Pharisee. And not a, he's, not, he's not a hypocritical Pharisee. He's a sincere Pharisee. He's a good man. He's a righteous person. But yet he knows deep down that all his religious zeal and good deeds are not enough. He's still looking for something more. And so that is the reason that he comes to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you have come from God. So he, he could see that there was something extraordinary about Jesus. Jesus had told him that his answer, or the answer to his longing, is a new birth. You must be born again. A new birth, a spiritual birth, a birth from above. Uh, the, the word again, the, the, the Greek word that's translated again, can also be translated from above. And so it actually means really kind of both things. It is born again, it's, it's a new birth, but it's a, but it's a birth that is from above. It's a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So this teaching on the necessity of the new birth is the basis for what John said at the beginning of this gospel about those receiving Jesus and becoming children of God. Remember what he said? He said, they are those born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So, Nicodemus is looking for something deeper than his religion has been able to provide for him. Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And so verse 14 is the answer to the question of Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this, this must have been mind-boggling to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as a ruler, as a teacher of Israel, he would have, of course, known this story. 
But I doubt that Nicodemus would have had any idea of the implications of the story. As a matter of fact, in, in the Jewish literature, this story back in Numbers chapter 21, this story is, it's, it's an enigma to the Jewish writers. They, they don't really even know what to make of it. I mean, it's, it's a historical thing. It happened. It's a strange thing. But they didn't really have any interpretation of what this story was really about. As I said, the story is found in Numbers 21. I'm going to read it to us real quick. It's short. It's only five verses. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Here's what it says. They traveled, the people of Israel, from Mount Hor, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake. And put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. And he put it upon a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. End of the story. So Nicodemus, all these centuries later, is perplexed by the words of Jesus, you must be born again. He says, how is this even possible? And Jesus refers to this story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You see, the bronze snake was a picture of the Son of Man bearing in himself the punishment for sin so all who believe in him might be forgiven and have life. And that's what Jesus said. As Moses lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus is answering the question, how is one born again? How is one born anew? How is one born from above? Now, as we come to verse 16, verses 16 through 21, those are the verses that we're going to focus on this morning. There is a debate among scholars as to whether verses 16 through 21 are a continuation of the answer of Jesus to Nicodemus or 
John's commentary on what has been said. Now, if you have a, uh, a black letter edition of the Bible, there, there's no red letters, in other words. Um, you, you'll just read this passage through and there's no indication one way or the other, except within the text itself when one voice is changing to another. If you have a red letter version, your red letter version, depending upon which version it is, the red letters might stop at verse 15 and then transition to black letters at verse 16. That's what my Bible here does, the NIV. So the publishers of the NIV have decided that Jesus finished speaking in verse 15 and John began then a commentary in verse 16. It is possible that that is the case. But you know, it, it doesn't really matter either way. Because of course, if John is commenting as an apostle, what he's saying is just as authoritative as what Jesus has said. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God breathed. So if John 3.16 is the words of John the apostle instead of Jesus, it doesn't really matter. But I think that we'll just consider them to be the words of Jesus. They, they very well could be. But the, the, the reason why there's a debate is because verses 16 through 21 seem to be speaking of the cross in the past tense, which is difficult to understand how Jesus would have done that at the time that he was speaking to Nicodemus. And it's not difficult to understand how John would have done it at the time of writing the gospel. So again, it's, it's not a big deal. I only bring it up because maybe you have a Bible where suddenly the red letters have stopped and now you've cut black letters and you're wondering, wait, what is going on here? No need to be alarmed either way. But we're, we'll just take it as carrying on the words of Jesus. But John 3.16 is perhaps the most well-known and oft-quoted passage in the Bible. I, I can hardly think of another passage in, in the New Testament, especially. Now, maybe, maybe the Old Testament would be Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. There might be a, a, you know, sort of an equality between Psalm 23 and John 3.16. But a New Testament passage, certainly John 3.16, is the most well-known verse in the New Testament. And there's a good reason for it. John 3.16 is, as has been said, it's a gospel in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that is the gospel in a nutshell, if you will. There is so much rich theology packed into this one verse. As I was preparing to teach today, there, there was a, a few minutes where I thought, I just need to just, just talk about John 3.16 and nothing else. Because there's so much in it. We could actually take the verse and, and probably break it into like a six-week sermon series. It is so packed with rich theology that all the preachers that have ever preached, all the scholars that have ever written, all the artists that have ever painted or composed have not exhausted it. It's, it's inexhaustible in a sense. So I'm not going to spend the rest of the time breaking it down like we could because I want to get us through verse 21. But let's look for a moment at the 16th verse. And focusing on God so loved. God so loved. Now we hear about God loving, God having loved, God being a God of love. We, we hear about that so frequently that it's easy to lose sight of how profound it really is. And you might not realize this, but the God of the Bible is the only God who is declared to be love in his very nature. He's the only God that has revealed himself as love. So any ideas of a God of love out in the broader religious world, any ideas of a God of love, know this, they've been borrowed from Christianity. They've been borrowed from the biblical revelation because they are not part of the revelation of these other religions. So this is unique to the Christian revelation, or we could say the Judeo-Christian Revelation. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we read, The Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this is just one of many Old Testament passages that you could point to that speak about the love of God. The New Testament, of course, we're here, we're looking at this great verse, for God so loved the world. But it's John who also tells us in his first letter, he tells us that God is love. 
And this is an important point to understand. God loved. We say God is a loving God. But the statement of John goes even deeper than that. Because John says God is love. Meaning that in his very nature, just like God is eternal, just like God is holy, just like God is uh, all-powerful or everywhere present or all-knowing, those are attributes of God that he alone possesses, so it is that God is love. And that cannot be said of anyone else. We might think of a person as a loving person. Of course, there are many that we could identify that way. But we would never say about them that they are love. But God is love. So that is the revelation. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, because that is his very nature. But that brings us to the second point, God's love for the world The Jewish people were ready enough to think of God as loving Israel. But no passage appears to be cited in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. So again, like um, I was saying a moment ago about the perplexity among the Jewish scholars regarding the... the um, the serpent in the wilderness. So likewise, when you search through the writings of the Jewish scholars and their, their commentary on scripture and so forth, you're, you're not going to find among them the idea that God loves the world, that God loves the Ammonites or the Midianites or the Philistines or you know any of those people groups that were seen as the, the perennial enemies of Israel. Or closer to the New Testament period, none of the rabbis were talking about God's love for the Romans. Their thinking was the absolute opposite. But here Jesus says, for God so loved the world. God loving the world is, again, a distinctively Christian idea. The idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all mankind. His love is not confined to any racial or national group or to any spiritual elitist group. His love is for the whole world. Now, there's even some Christians who have a problem with this statement. Some hold a theology that denies that God loves the whole world collectively. They would add to the statement that God loves the world of the elect. But the passage clearly says 
that God loves the world, meaning the multitudes of sinful people. But not the world in just a, a collective sense or not just in, in the sense of the masses, but each person individually. When Jesus says, we're going with Jesus having said this, when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, he's talking about everybody. But he's talking about everybody also in an individual sense. The rich, the poor, the learned, the unlearned, the extraordinary, the common, the weak, the strong, the good, the bad. God loves people. He loves all people. And it's because he loves all people that he sent his one and only son into the world. And this is the, the great demonstration of God's love. You see, there are those other religions, perhaps, that would speak about a God of love, but it's the biblical faith that has a picture of the God of love. It's the biblical faith that doesn't simply tell us that, that God loved the world, but it, there's a demonstration for us of that love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or as Paul put it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he said that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's just riffing off of John 3.16 here. But this is the demonstration. This is how John would later say in his uh, epistle, his first epistle, this is how we know love. We know love because God gave his one and only son. So this is how we know the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, and that's a key word right there, whoever. Who is this love for? It's for all people. Who is this salvation for? It's for everyone. It's for whoever. Whoever will. That's the invitation of Scripture. Whoever will, let them come. I love at the end of the book of Revelation where it says there, sort of a, a, a final call, the Spirit and the bride say come. And let whoever will come and drink of the water of life freely. God sends the invitation out to the entire world. Whoever, whoever believes in him. So again, this is the answer to the question of Nicodemus. And what was the question? 
The question again was, how was one born again and able to see and enter the kingdom of God? Because that's what Jesus was speaking about to Nicodemus. So when Nicodemus says, how can this be? He's asking, how, how can one be born again? Jesus said, you can't see or enter the kingdom unless you're born again. So this is the answer to the question. How does this happen? Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. So whoever believes, that, that is the means through which we come into this new state, this, this new birth that Jesus is talking about, this, this spiritual birth, this entering into the life of God that is so radical, that is so extraordinary, that nothing compares to it. And it comes through a simple act of faith. Believe, faith, trust, they all are basically synonyms. They all are speaking of the same thing. So whoever believes in him will not perish. So this is the, this is the, the simple means through which people experience the new birth. God, he hasn't made it complicated. Again, Paul addresses this in, in Romans 10. He says, he's speaking of, of salvation. He says, it's not, it's not something that's up in heaven. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. It's not something that's up in heaven that you've got to climb up and, and bring it down to earth. It's not something that's below the earth that you've got to dig down and lay hold of it but the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so believing, trusting. Now, there's, there's oftentimes two responses to this message. One response is, oh, that's way, that's way too simple. That cannot be the way people are saved. You mean to tell me all I need to do is believe in Jesus and, and that's it, I'm saved? I, I can't believe that. That's just way too simple. Surely there's something else. Surely there's something that, that I must do. Surely my works are necessary to make a contribution to this. And so you have that response. On the one side, it's too simple. And then sometimes on the other side, you have almost the, the opposite. Well, I, I, I just can't believe that. I mean, how, how could I even believe that? That doesn't seem fair. Why, why do I have to believe that? 
But either way you look at it, this is what God has stated. That this new birth that is absolutely essential, that no one can, can see or enter the kingdom of God without, it comes through faith. Believing that God gave his one and only son. That God gave his one and only son. And, and then, of course, in the giving of his son, what's implied there is he gave his son in our place to pay the penalty for our sins as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man will be lifted up. And the promise is that for those who believe, those who trust, and, and let me just say one word about believe. Believe is not mere intellectual assent. It's not just, oh, yeah, I believe that. Sure, yeah, that, that probably happened. Yeah I, yeah, I think I believe that. No, but it's, it's believing into. It, it's trusting in. Just as those Israelites when they were bit by the serpent and had just perhaps minutes before that venom led to their death, you bet your life that when they were, they were looking for that serpent raised up on that pole, they were looking with full expectation that Deliverance was going to come. And so believing in Jesus is not a casual thing. It's not a, a thing that we just sort of flippantly, yeah, I believe that. Sounds plausible. No, it's I believe that. I trust in that. And so whoever believes, whoever trusts, shall not perish but have eternal life, shall not perish. So here Jesus brings up the reality of, of perishing, that people are perishing. That's why he's come into the world. God loves the world, doesn't want people to perish, and therefore he sent his son into the world. There are only two possible final outcomes for human beings. Either to perish, which, although the Bible never gives us a very immediate or specific definition of what that is talking about, as we look at the bigger picture of Scripture in its totality, what is being communicated through the term perish is to be banished from the presence of God from his goodness and his love forever. So that's one possibility for human beings or the other possibility, the desired uh, option is to live eternally with the God who is love. And that's the desire of God. That's why God sent his son into the world. He is not wanting any to perish. And not only is he not wanting any to perish, he has 
done everything possible short of violating our free will to keep us from perishing. I mean, isn't it true that so many people have almost the exact opposite view of God as is true of God? People don't think of God as loving the world. They think of God as, as if there is a God, he's an angry God. It's better to even just dismiss the idea that there's a God altogether, some would say, because we don't need a, an angry God who's going to judge people, who's going to send people to a place called hell. And that is the perspective that a number of people, a lot of people hold on God. But it's, a, it's the opposite of what is true about God. And along that line, people are thinking that God's preference is that people would go to hell. That he wants to send everybody there. But nothing could be further from the truth. He is not willing that any should perish. God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty of sin. He sent the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to draw us to Christ. He blesses our lives and orchestrates events in our lives to seek to get our attention he exercises unimaginable patience with us in the hope that we would come to our senses and turn to him. I mean, the, this is really what's true about God. God goes out of his way. Have you ever had the thought about somebody? And let's just take a, a real evil person and the thought is man why doesn't God judge them why doesn't God just take them out why doesn't he just rid the world of this of this person why doesn't he just cast them into hell well the reason is because that's not in the end what he really wants to do he longs for them to turn to him and so he's long-suffering, Peter tells us, not willing that any should perish. That's the heart of God. But with all that, the truth is more people will end up in hell, a place that was never intended for human beings than will end up in heaven. Why? Why? Well, the remaining verses answer the question for us. But go back to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
And this is the verdict. This is the reason why people will go to hell. Because light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And, and of course, it's the light of the gospel that's being referred to here. But think about the light of creation. God is, has given witness to humanity of the truth of his existence through a number of different ways. Creation being the first, if you will, witness to the reality of God. And in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, he spells all of this out. That which may be known of God has been manifested to them, for God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his divine nature, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. By the things that are made. Creation is a light that, that seeks to pierce through the darkness of human sin. But then there's also conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone has an innate sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. And has a sense of guilt when they fail to live up to what is right. So we have the light of creation, we have the light of conscience, but now what's, what's being spoken of here is the light of the gospel. Light has come into the world. And, and of course, Jesus is the reference here to the light that's come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But the sad and tragic thing is that people love darkness rather than light. And we see it so clearly today, don't we? But it's, it's been the case all the way along. But the further our culture detaches itself from any conviction or belief in God, we see that... Uh, we see that, that love of darkness. We see that hostility toward Jesus Christ and everything that he stands for and everything that he teaches. So people love darkness, the darkness of their pride, the darkness of their thoughts, the darkness of their will, the darkness of their hatred, the darkness of their lust. People love darkness. Now listen to this. This might blow your mind. The word loved darkness or loved, it's the word agapeo. Wow. 
we talk about agape love, right? We talk about God so loved the world. That's the same word, agape. And we've talked in depth at times about the significance of this word and how it's referring to a deep, devoted kind of a love. That's the love that people have for darkness. And listen, lest we think that that's just for those people out there, this is all people by nature. This is our state. We prefer darkness to light. We love darkness. And the only thing that makes a difference is responding to the light of the conviction of the Spirit that turns our hearts in a new direction. It's, it's God coming after us and us responding to that. That's the difference that is made. For were that not the case, we would all be out there just loving the darkness like everybody else is. See, the, the only difference between the believer and the unbeliever is we have trusted in Christ, responded to the conviction of the Spirit where others haven't. But let's always remember that just as we have, so others can as well. The ones that we sometimes want to write off, those people that love darkness, we want to, let's write them off. But let's not be too quick to do that. Because in doing that, we might have written ourselves off. But a few more things. He says their deeds are evil. The idea that people are basically good is an idea that is utterly foreign to the Bible. Utterly foreign to the Bible. This is, this is, of course, the idea behind every humanistic philosophy that people are, are basically good and that goodness just needs to be stoked. They need to be in an environment where that goodness can begin to flourish. The idea that there's a spark of good in every person is not a biblical idea. It is contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So not only does he say that people love darkness, but he says in verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. These are such strong words. But the, this is the reality. People hate the light. We often make the mistake of thinking that humans are somehow innocent, basically good, ignorant, or just unenlightened. We see ourselves as sick or victims rather than active collaborators with sin and Satan. But God's evaluation of the situation is that people love darkness and hate the light. 
So what, what is Jesus saying here? He's giving the explanation for why, even though there is this universal offer of salvation, why many will still perish. He's explaining to us why that is the case. But here's what we need to remember. Everyone is invited to step out of the darkness and into the light. And those of us who have done that need to be reminding others that that is God's desire. Because God's love displayed by giving his one and only son is indiscriminate and unconditional. Everyone is invited to come out of the darkness into the light of Christ because, as Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So you see, that this is the gospel. This is the, the good news. The good news is set against the backdrop of the reality of of humankind's love for darkness and hatred of the light. But God knew all of that. And knowing all of that, he comes into the world to call out from that any and all who will respond. And that's because his love is immense. His love is, it's, it's inconceivable in many ways. It's beyond what we could even imagine, the greatness of his love. And I'll close with that hymn that Char sang this morning. Those words from that hymn, The Love of God. And just think of this. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every blade of grass a quill and every person a scribe by trade? You get the picture? An ocean full of ink. The sky is the scroll. Every blade of grass is the quill and every human being is a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, those stretched from sky to sky. We have not known the half of the love of God. Never forget that. Never underestimate that. Remember, it's because of that that you have been born again.
and remember that that same love that drew you to this new life in Christ is extended to all who ever will. Let them come and drink. And we have again this morning the opportunity to, to just experience this as we share together in the bread and the cup. I mean, this is really that um, tangible experience of God's love. The bread that reminds us of the body that was broken. The cup that reminds us of the blood that was shed. For greater love has no one than this, said Jesus, than to lay down one's life for their friends. And that's what he's done. And so let's reflect on that great love of God today as we hold in our hand that bread and as we take to our lips that cup, reminding us of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And if there's a single person with us that hasn't come into that, that beautiful new life that Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about, that, that profound state of being born again, you can do that. Because as we said, God has made it simple. He's made it so simple. He wants everyone to believe. And it's the simplicity of believing. I believe that. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I, I am a sinner. I have loved the darkness, hated the light. That has been who I've been. But I believe what the gospel says. And as you believe, as many as believe and receive, he gives the power to become the children of God. And so, Lord, as we partake now of the bread and the cup, we pray your spirit would move upon our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that this deep, deep love that we've been talking about today, Lord, we need to not just hear about it, but Lord, may we experience it. May we sense it. May we know it. Amen.